Episode 82, Flag Waving. I'm Assistant Curator Merle Riedel, and you're listening to a June 3rd, 2009 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. During the Civil War, flags were the primary means of orchestrating men on the battlefield. Apparently, this worked well for horses, too. Join curator Blair Tarr and me as we examine two Civil War guidons used by Kansas cavalry units. These small guidons were the pride of their units, even if they never left the office. What does the damage on these flags tell us about their history, and how did they acquire square cannonball damage? Then, we enter the land of the Nile, when we connect William Allen White to Cleopatra, a sultry Egyptian ruler with a thing for Italian men. What does Cleopatra, William Allen White, and the host of this podcast have in common? Find out when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White. But first, flag waving. It makes me want to scream. Good morning, Blair. Good morning, your moralness. Today, we are looking at two small Civil War flags used by Kansas units. Uh, these flags are more commonly known as guidons. They are made of silk and resemble a federal flag. What makes them different from other flags, though, is their smaller size and the fact that each has a big triangular chunk missing out of the back, uh, of the back edge. Uh, these flags were called guidons, and cavalry units units typically use them. What is the function of a guidon, and what makes it so special to soldiers on horses? Well, it is, as you said, it is smaller than the usual stars and stripes, and that makes good sense because if you are riding along on horseback, you know, the wind resistance is going to be a bit of a problem. You probably prefer a smaller flag than something that was well in this during the Civil War would have been six and a half feet by six. Yes. You probably could have seen a lot of cavalrymen getting whipped to death by the flags uh, yes. under those circumstances. Getting knocked off by a good yes. wind. <laughs> uh, the V shape you mentioned is also there to cut down on wind resistance as well. It's the sw- the, I'll refer to it as a swallowtail by that shape. Uh, so that design sort of prevents the whipping of the back edge yes. like that. Yeah. I never thought of that. Well, that's pretty handy. It's very handy, yes. It's credit. It's amazing what the army can come up with. <laughs> so that would be that they would be attached to a, a small handheld flagpole. Yes, and you would ride on the horse. Yeah, usually there would be some sort of. I can't think what the word is right off the top of my head, but there'd be a place to put the end of the, the flagpole. Like a sling that's sling, mounted on yes, the horse. Yeah. Guidons were not always common in the U.S. military, which I didn't know that. I kind of thought they had been around forever. But they haven't. When did they first appear? Uh, They they actually didn't appear until 1862 during the Civil War. Now, there were smaller flags that were used before that time. And what they were, were, what uh, we refer to as standards, which is usually a blue flag with the seal or the coat of arms of the United States in the center of the eagle looking, holding the olive branch and the arrows. Mm-hmm. Again, this was a smaller size uh, than what the infantry units were holding or carrying. I'm not quite sure what the reason is for why the cavalry units did not carry the stars and stripes, but it was was not until 1862 that they adopted this and they 
came up with the swallowtail design for the Gaiden. So in 1862, were cavalry units the only units you would have seen carrying flags like this, these swallowtail small flags? Uh, yes, as far as I know. Uh, both the infantry and artillery units had full-size flags. The first flag that we're looking at today, it belonged to the 9th Kansas Cavalry, uh, which fought bravely in the Civil War, but, could, but just couldn't seem to find a way for all of its units to be in the same place at the same time. Where did these soldiers originate from, and why were they so scattered? I have to admit I need to do it. I should have done a little more research here because I'm not... I assume that, like most of the Kansas companies, or units rather, the, the companies were from various parts of Kansas, mm -hmm. and they were brought together. The other thing I'm not quite sure about is why they were sort of split up. You'd send a few companies here, a few companies there, and very rarely was the regiment ever together at one time. It was sort of split up. Now, that may have something to do with them being so close to the border and Kansas troops being a little suspect when they are fighting in Missouri. Right. Or <laughs> you, you never know what Kansas troops are going to do we, in Missouri. Yes, we did have one regiment, the 7th Kansas Cavalry, that finally, after too many problems in Missouri where they were saying to help the Confederate cause more than the Union cause, they got sent to the east side of the Mississippi River and down south in Mississippi and Louisiana. So that may have been part of the reasoning. I mean, we're talking about this because the flag is a regimental flag, right? It's a regimental yeah. guide on. But the problem with the unit, like the 9th Kansas, is that you're spread out. So you're never really together as a regiment. So it makes... The regimental flag is, is not, you yeah. know, it's a little harder to identify with because it belongs to people that you never see. Yes, I presume it stayed with wherever the colonel was at that time or the, the officer in charge of the regiment. Did, uh, was that uncommon for regiments to be so broke up like that? Uh, it wasn't uncommon. It sounds like maybe with the ninth it happened a little bit more often than some, but it was sort of a case where the manpower was needed too, as as it turned out. I think that also happened to some extent with the 11th Kansas Cavalry as well, because particularly at the end of the war, when they were still dealing with what the army referred to as the Indian problem, mm -hmm. uh, some of the companies got split up from the the main body of the regiment. So you say this flag would have probably stayed with the colonel. I think so. Uh, where, where would this flag have gone, or what? What would it have seen any battles? Uh, it's possible that it did. Uh, I'm blanking on who the colonel was for this regiment. I'm sorry. Uh, but, yeah, it's it's possible. But I, there's some questions I've always had about the flags west of the Mississippi, too, and how they were used. I don't think they were necessarily used the same way as they were east of the Mississippi. Oh, really? The standard line on how flags are used in the Civil War is that they're markers because it's a smoke-filled battlefield. And this comes true in a lot of places like Gettysburg and Fredericksburg, where there were great numbers of troops involved. Battlefield got smoke filled very quickly. Flags stood out so that the officers could see, give directions on how to direct the battle. Now, west of the Mississippi, the battles aren't any less fierce, but they don't have the same numbers as you do in the east. Right. And. I'm not sure that it was as quite as necessary to have the flags out. I think you probably only had a few regiments at most battles in the West, and it might not be as necessary to guess what, or to know which unit was there. You probably had a pretty good idea. And because of that, 
we've made the comment that sometimes our flags look a little better than we kind of expect them to. That may be the case. It may just simply be that they weren't used as much as, as they were back east. The second flag was used by the 11th Kansas Cavalry, which you talked about uh, briefly. Yes. Uh, it has a very rich history. Not that the 9th Kansas doesn't have a rich history, but uh, the 11th Kansas is pretty interesting. Um, but they are most noted uh, for their fight against two of the rather more notorious Civil War villains, I guess, at least villains from a Kansas perspective. Uh, who were these villains, and what was the 11th Kansas, what was their connection to them? Well, I'm assuming one of them has got to be William Clark Quantrell, of because uh, <laughs> after the raid, his raid on Lawrence, uh, part of the 11th Kansas did give chase to the the rebels, and even had some small skirmishes with them as they went back to Missouri. And Quantrill's a, a, a like pro pro Southern guerrilla pro Southern living in guerrilla. Missouri. Oh, yes, raids definitely, he's just killed at least 150 people in Lawrence. So yes, he's he's definitely considered a villain in Kansas. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other villain, I assume you could be only referring to the University of Missouri athletic teams. <laughs> Close. No, actually, no. <laughs> I, was, I was trying to reference uh, Sterling Price. Sterling Price. Okay, the Confederate so general. Yeah. Tell us who Sterling Price is and what the 11th Kansas, how, what, was, what they had to do to him. Okay, well, Sterling Price is a Confederate general, former governor of Missouri, very pro-Southern. In late 1864, he leads a raid that starts, that comes out of Arkansas in the east and goes up into Missouri. He had this idea that he was going to retake Missouri for the Confederacy. Mm-hmm. The, conf- the Confederacy didn't really think that was going to happen, but they were hoping he could disrupt a few things, like move on St. Louis and perhaps get some troops that were in Georgia back to protect St. Louis and cause some trouble at other theaters of the war. Mm-hmm. That doesn't happen. They kind of hope that he can take Jefferson City and reinstall the Confederate governor of Missouri. They're actually right, the exiled governor who's actually governor. traveling with him. Well, that didn't actually work either. He was, I think he got into Jeff City for a few hours and they had to leave because they were being pursued by Union troops. Mm-hmm. The third part of their uh, mission was to cause trouble, uh, move toward Kansas, perhaps towards Fort Leavenworth if possible, to disrupt things with the Army. And that probably comes the closest to anything actually happening because they do get involved in what I always refer to as seven days of battle in the Kansas City area and then down to Mine Creek in in Lynn County. Uh, The 11th Kansas Cavalry is very much involved in this. They're involved in the battles such as um, uh, Little Blue, Big Blue, and Westport. Mm -hmm. And they're awfully darn close to Mine Creek. It's the ironic thing that for our only major battle in Kansas, there are no Kansas troops present at Mine Creek. The closest, <laughs> the closest group is part of the 11th who are over at Mound City skirmishing with some Confederates there. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, they're the closest ones to <laughs> fighting, actually fighting in Mine Creek. These flags recently returned from conservation treatment uh, back east, uh, on the, uh, somewhere along the east coast, maybe. Uh, what exactly was done to them, and, and how is it paid for? Well, this was good training for one of our, one of our staff members. Uh, we did send them back to the lab in uh, now West Virginia, I believe, uh, Textile Preservation Associates. 
uh, and our assistant registrar slash conservator. <laughs> no, you don't want to say slash conservator. That doesn't sound good. Uh, it sort of defeats the purpose. Yeah, you don't want to slash the conservator. <laughs> yes, Nikayla, Nikayla Zimmerman uh, went back for some training, and she got to work on these flags with the watchful eyes of the people in the lab back there. Uh, essentially, it was cleaned, humidified, and smoothed out so that it could be displayed at, at appropriate times. And this was probably one of the more basic bits of conservation, but none, nonetheless still needed. And mm-hmm. we're certainly grateful we had the opportunity for Nikayla to go and learn that process. Uh, how it was paid for? Well, we did get some grant money from this, from the IM. I should say this out full ways, not just yeah. the initials. The Institute of Museum and Library Services. Thank you very much, a federal agency that helps out museums with grants uh, for conservation projects like this. Uh, we also had to match that grant, so we are very thankful to people that have supported the flag project over time and mm-hmm. made uh, contributions to it. There's a Save the, Fla- a Save the Flags fund, right? Yes, and, and people is. can contribute to that if they'd we like. We are always looking forward to that. We still have, uh, I can't think of the exact number offhand, but we still have about 25 silk flags at least that need conservation work. Mm-hmm. And if they want to, they can go to our website and they can find a link to donate. They certainly can, and the larger the better. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Uh, finally, Blair, these flags, honestly, they appear uh, to be in remarkably good condition, which, which you talked a little bit about earlier. Yeah. Do you think these two particular flags, um, not just the 9th, but the 11th, do you think they ever actually saw the battlefield? Or were they, like, did they never even leave? Uh, were they ever actually carried on, on the battlefield at all? Well, you look at that 9th Kansas Cavalry flag, and it's, it's beautifully intact. There's a little cracking of the silk there, but, you know, it really doesn't look like it saw a lot of action. And I think that gets back to the problem of the regiment being split up so much. So it probably never left the regimental headquarters. Probably somewhere. not, although until we find some records that say otherwise, we'll probably never really know. The other thing is uh, each company supposedly had a guidance. This is one of the ones we've had that survived, and we just don't know which company it's from. Now, with the 11th Kansas, we do know it's on the flagpole itself, if I remember correctly. This is actually from Company A. Okay. And they did see some action. Uh, Again, I'm a little foggy on where exactly. I think they might have been part of the group that was down at uh, Mound City. And also, they were one of the ones that got sent out to what's now Wyoming, fight Indians. Uh, part of the Indian campaign. Part of the Indian campaigns after the Civil War was done. The Army didn't let want to release them just yet. They still had a need for them. They didn't like that very much because that's not what they signed up for. But, yeah. uh, but if you look at this one, there's more damage to the swallowtail, which sort of indicates that yeah, it probably was in the wind a little bit more often. Uh, looks like one of the edges is a little cut nicely, so that may be what we sometimes refer to as square cannonball damage. Uh, that's essentially somebody took scissors and cut a little souvenir of their flag. Uh, square, <laughs> square cannonball damage. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Uh, but it looks like it may have seen a little bit more than uh, the ninth Kansas flag did. All right, Blair. Well, thanks for telling us about these uh, recently treated Civil War battle flags. And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me today is Assistant Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Hello. Public Information Officer Teresa Jenkins. Hello. 
and exhibits technician Morgan Shortle. Hi. It is a full house in here today. <laughs> today, we are connecting William Alloway to Cleopatra, the last pharaoh of ancient Egypt. But first, I have an announcement. Sadly, this will be the last time you hear my voice on the Cool Things podcast for a while. I'm a member of the Kansas Army National Guard, and for the next year, I will be deployed. In my absence, Morgan Shortle, Morgan? Yes. <laughs> will be helping out with the podcast. She'll be uh, taking over the, uh, the hosting roles. Uh, with that in mind, uh, I have agreed to answer what, what I feel may be the burning questions of, uh, of our plethora of listeners, all 12 of them. Oh, there's more than that. <laughs> okay, there's a couple more. All right, um, I believe you have some questions for me, yes? Yes, we do. We want to know where you are going. I am going to the Sinai Peninsula of Egypt. It's kind of that little little chunk up in the uh, north northeast corner of Egypt. Um, that, uh, that part of Egypt borders present-day Israel. And uh, so we'll be doing some work in that area. And uh, we will be located near the resort town of Sharm el-Sheikh. You may have heard this. You may have heard of this town. There's often a lot of peace conferences there. Um, uh, people like Hillary Clinton. She was there a couple months ago. Um, so you hear Sharm el Sheikh a lot, and it's fun to say. I think Sharm el Sheikh. <laughs> and it's a resort town. It is yeah. a resort town. Party. It's a little bit. It's a little. It's a little bit like Vegas in the uh, in, a, in Egypt. But I'm guessing you're not going for the two-foot-long drinks and the gambling. Why are you going? No, no. Well. Um, as it happens, in 1979, Jimmy Carter signed a peace treaty. Um, uh, we are going there to basically uh, um, do a peacekeeping mission and to do conduct treaty enforcement of this 1979 um, treaty. Um, you know, we, we all know there's a lot of tension between uh, Palestinians and uh, the Israelis, and and for years, Egypt and um, Egypt and Israel were at war with one another, and they would, you know perpetually invade back, invade each other back and forth through the Sinai Peninsula. So this treaty was designed to stabilize that area and prevent that from happening. So we're just going there to make sure uh, make sure everything is done as it's supposed to be done and uh, that peace is maintained. So I think you kind of already answered this, but what will you be doing? Uh, well, most of us will do like what I just said, um, just making sure that the treaty is enforced. And then there'll be a portion of us that are um, there to basically provide life support functions to make sure that the other soldiers have everything they need. So do you have any plans to part the Red Sea or climb mountains to find burning bushes and tablets with commandments written on them? <laughs> Currently, um, I have no, plan, no plans for sea splitting, um, but I do hope to get an opportunity to do some snorkeling. Um, the Sinai Coast is actually uh, is, is probably best known for its snorkeling. It's got some uh, phenomenal coral reefs along the beaches and just out, out in the, in the um, Gulf of Aqaba. Uh, I hope to also visit the pyramids in Mount Sinai. We'll, we'll see how that works out. Um, if not, I guess I will have to stick with the casinos and nightclubs of Sharm el Sheikh. <laughs> All right. No other questions? Wait, when are you coming back? Oh, oh, uh, probably in August of 2010. So, listeners, start marking your calendars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But stick what, with us yes. Uh, yes. until he gets back. Right, right. Morgan will be great. Yes. <laughs> Um, all right, now back to Six Degrees of William Allen White. And uh, sticking with our Egyptian theme, today we are talking about Cleopatra. 
Cleo was born in 1969. <laughs> a little earlier than that. She was born in 69 BC. She was the daughter. She was a daughter in one of Egypt's most powerful, well, the most powerful ruling family, the Ptolemies. Interestingly, she uh, probably spoke Greek and probably did not usually speak Egyptian uh, because her family was descended from Ale- Alexander the Great of Macedonia, um, and so she spoke Greek. After her father's death. Um, she battled with her younger brother to rule Egypt. They kind of were at each other's throats. They were co-ruling for a long time, always trying to kill each other. Her success was guaranteed when she hooked up with Julius Caesar and had a baby. Um, but because, well, Caesar was already married, um, caused quite a scandal. After Caesar's death, Cleo required a new sugar daddy, so she hooked up with Mark Antony, one of Caesar's um, more well-known generals. Uh, when Antony failed to successfully defeat Caesar Octavian, who is the nephew of the other Caesar, <laughs> and also Antony's prime, primary rival, this all made so, so much more sense when I was writing it out. Uh, so when Antony couldn't uh, pay off, basically Cleo dropped him. Uh, realizing that the jig was up for her, that uh, a new boss was in town, she killed herself um, with a poison snake. Wow. Her death marked the end of the pharaoh system, and from that point on, it was basically Romans or uh, a Roman uh, representative that ruled Egypt. So that's a little bit of, um, that's the background on Cleo. <laughs> um, and I believe, Teresa, I believe you have a solution. I do. You know, I was really hoping that I could find a historical link of the descendants of Cleopatra that would connect me to William Allen White. But I ran out of time, so I went to imdb.com instead. So here we go, the Hollywood version. Long before she starred as the Queen of the Nile, Elizabeth Taylor's third film was Jane Eyre in 1944 in which she played the big screen, uh, shared the big screen with child actress Margaret O'Brien. Now, two years earlier, O'Brien was in the film Journey for Margaret, in which she played an orphan in World War II London that was adopted by an American war correspondent. The film was inspired by the book written by William Lindsay White, mm-hmm. and it was based on his real events in which he and his wife adopted a war orphan in World War II. Their adopted daughter would grow up to be Barbara White Walker, Mm -hmm. and she would become the fourth member of her family to serve as editor of the Emporia Gazette. So there you go. Pretty impressive. Nice. Uh, I've actually met, I met Barbara, I didn't meet her. She walked by and I said hi, but I don't think she really saw me. (laughs) (laughs) Nice lady. Uh, Nikayla, I believe you have a solution as well, is that right? I do, and... Like Teresa, I was hoping for something really cool, but <laughs> that hard. was turning into 600 degrees of Allen White. So, I also had to take a more mainstream approach. Um, George Bernard Shaw, who was a playwright, most people know him for writing Pygmalion, which was the basis for My Fair Lady. Um, he also wrote a popular play entitled Caesar and Cleopatra. Shaw was also an ardent socialist, and he was a member of the Fabian Society. Um, It was a club in London that was formed in 1884, and it advanced the principles of socialism in a more reformist manner. They weren't revolutionaries. Um, And they laid the foundation for what we now know as the Labor Party in England. So another member of the Fabian Society was H.G. Wells, who, if you go to Emporia, you will find his name and address in William Allen White's book. They were... They were acquaintances. Mm-hmm. So. H.G. Wells being the science fiction writer, That's is that right? right? Yes, he wrote War of the Worlds and Island of Dr. Moreau. So, But he yeah. was also a journalist, right? He wrote for a variety of newspapers, and that's kind yeah. of through those networks that he met William Allen White. Yep. 
All right. Cool. Good job. Thank Good you. job. Morgan? <laughs> no, I don't have anything. <laughs> I'm here to introduce the next. Right, right. Next Morgan, one. you want to issue the challenge for the next episode? Yes. For the next episode, we want you to connect William Allen White to the Belmont Stakes, the final of three races that make up horse racing's Triple Crown. The other two races being the Kentucky Derby and the Preakness. Can I just, I'm just curious, like, they make a big deal out of the Triple Crown in horse racing. Like, why is there got to be three final races, you know? There's not three Super Bowls. It's three um, three events to party. I guess so. Oh. And wear hats, right? Or is yeah. that yes. just the Kentucky Wear hats party? and drink special drinks. Yeah. Yeah. No, they, I think they wear hats to all three of them. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> so held annually at Belmont Park in Elmont, New York, since 1866, this prestigious race has been champion, has seen champion horses such as Lemon Drop Kid, Tabasco Cat, <laughs> and Stage Door Johnny. There's just some great names. I love Tabasco Cat. <laughs> Uh, so if you think you can connect William Allen White to a horse race whose famous drink was once called the White Carnation and was said to have tasted like refined trash can punch, All right. just send your solution <laughs> to podcast at kshs.org. That's podcast with an S. And that's the last time I'll have to say that until 2010. <laughs> That concludes episode 82, Flag Waving. You can inspect the damage on these two flags by looking at images on our website, kshs.org. To find out about our latest podcast postings or other new artifacts and photographs acquired by the Historical Society, check out our Facebook page and become our friend. Just search for Kansas Historical Society. Come back in two weeks when Assistant Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman and Exhibits Technician Morgan Shortle examine a sketchbook that belonged to Kansas artist Henry Worrell. This British artist came to Kansas in the late 1860s and became known for his exaggerated paintings of giant vegetables. And, as his sketchbook reveals, he also possessed a rather disturbing image of bunny rabbits. This podcast has been a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories.